Section 7 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Gloriana and Her Knights. Part 1. The storm clouds had rolled away and the sun was shining peacefully over England when Drake came home. A week ago, the last adherent of Mary Stuart had been hanged in Edinburgh. Alva had turned his back upon the discredited English Catholics, and Elizabeth's government was drawing a long sigh of relief. Both England and Spain were but too glad to enjoy the respite which Alva's overtures afforded, and Drake, burning with his desire for the South Sea, found himself plunged into the chilling waters of an amicable arrangement so far from there being any hope of the government countenancing his passion he was confronted with the possibility of being sacrificed as a pirate on the altar of peace elizabeth was surrounded by friends of spain the master of her household was in philip's pay mr christopher hatton her new favourite was a papist in his politics and although the ridolfi plot had ruptured diplomatic relations with the escurial there was a recognized spanish agent in london who began protesting with such energy that drake found it necessary to hurry out to sea again for fear of arrest there is much to be said for the spaniard's contention that his proceedings were flat piracy true there is no definition of the offence accepted by modern publicists which would fix the guilt upon him he had not acted as a hostess humani generis, but as an enemy of Spain alone. He had not pillaged animo ferandi, but under colour of right. Still at that time international law had not so nicely ascertained the limits of piracy and irregular reprisal. That Drake was entitled to reprisal under the old law of nations there was no denying. He had been wronged, he had applied through his government for redress, and redress had not been forthcoming. But it was now a well-established doctrine that before a subject of one country put in force his remedy of special reprisal against the subjects of another, he ought to obtain a commission from his own prince, or some authorized official of his government. Such a commission John Hawkins held at this moment, and William Hawkins was the Queen's governor at Plymouth if drake was not employed by the one he at least had the connivance if not the sanction of the other whether elizabeth had directly authorized the expedition the friends of spain could never find out they blew hot and cold on the point like men with a weak case at one moment they tried to fix her with complicity in the next they sought to convict drake by denying that he had her authority the queen as usual would not commit herself though she smiled and held the rod behind her back it did not suit her diplomacy just then to disown the blow with which philip's extremities were tingling it was just what she wanted to whip him into the ratification of alva's convention so it was only a question of time for drake to be able to reappear out of hiding and hold up his head without fear of the lord admiral and in the proud consciousness of an exploit that was dear in the eyes of his sovereign nor did he doubt it was as dear in the sight of heaven as elizabeth consulted jewel so drake had consulted his spiritual adviser and the parson had told the seaman as the bishop told the queen 
that to prey on the idolaters was doing god a service we may laugh in cynical distrust of such convenient doctrine and doubt the tenderness of consciences so simply satisfied but it was all real and sincere enough then the elizabethan protestants went to the bible for their political morality as a man goes now to his newspaper and in the pages of scripture they found writ large and clear a command for unceasing war on idolatry nothing was plainer to men like drake than that the mass was an idolatrous rite he had seen the spaniard abasing himself beside the passing host he had seen the african negro grovelling before his mumbo-jumbo and too simple-minded to grasp the higher mysticism of the catholic creed he could find no difference between the two states of mind so with all the devotion of gideon he warred upon the idolaters and revelled like a hebrew captain in the spoil of the heathen it was to him a crusade and like a crusader he made war never once was his creed made to serve as a cloak for piratical excesses for him his religion was as much a bridle as a spur implacable as was his animosity against spain spaniards were universally won by the courtesy and even the generosity with which he treated them he never killed a prisoner no matter what he risked by sparing his life he never destroyed a ship unless it was taken in active war against him his hate was heroic and he fought his enemies as though he loved them for a church or a woman or an unarmed man he had a noble forbearance that puts the brightest chivalry of his time to blush and it was the grateful eulogies of his prisoners of war that crowned his reputation still in spite of all his chivalry politicians who believed his exploits were dangerous would not be persuaded these men regarded rivalry with spain as madness they were content if england maintained her position as a second-rate power and picked up a subsistence in such corners of the world as she could find unoccupied by spain thus though the law did not lay hands on him he was not permitted to put in practice the scheme with which his heart was aching and with admirable patience he submitted to the restraint his passion never ceased to consume him yet month after month and year after year he waited for the queen to sanction his quest his only solace was to send his brothers and companions to continue his work and to watch cruiser after cruiser leaving plymouth for the west fired by his success hawkins winter and half the devon gentry were fitting out vessels to follow where he had led but drake remained at home poor john oxenham who had vowed to be his fellow in the great enterprise was not so patient after waiting three years he stole away to the south sea overland and being taken by spaniards with no commission to show was hanged for a pirate on lima gallows as every one knows more wise and loyal than his lieutenant drake sought relief in the public service in august fifteen seventy three a few days after his return the earl of essex had gone to bury his reputation in ulster in view of the coming struggle with spain ireland was as great in anxiety for elizabeth as the low countries were for philip and the chivalrous earl had craved permission to undertake the quest and to reduce the island to his mistress's obedience with his own quixotic lance drake was there too if legend says true hiding in queenstown harbour where in the creek that still bears his name he was lost to his persecutors and philip's cruisers 
There he lay till his pardon was sure, but with his danger faded all hope of a venture to the Pacific. As the year 1574 grew old, the government drew closer and closer to Spain. Walsingham and Leicester were still for defying Philip and openly assisting the Prince of Orange, but Burley and Bacon had gone over to the party of the Spanish alliance. Alva was now at Philip's ear, and Spain was as effusive as England. The English refugee traders were banished from Philip's dominions, and Sir Henry Cobham went over to Madrid to negotiate a commercial treaty. Thus, when at last Drake was able to emerge from his lair, he found the air filled with such a peal of harmony that it was useless to expect his sighs to be heard. In despair he resolved to seek service in Ireland, and in the spring of 1575, armed with a letter of introduction from Hawkins, he joined the Earl with his frigate, the Falcon. Around Essex was gathered the flower of English knight errantry, and the adventurous seaman was received with open arms into their company. Here were Black John Norris and his brother William, and others of their stamp, fresh from the Low Country Wars. They were the last of the old race of medieval soldiers whom the Prince of Orange's mathematics were soon to improve away. Breathing valiant men, who hot of head and stout of heart gave to Shakespeare his stormy captains, and like them, bigoted, quarrelsome, and loyal, loving, hating, and fighting, raged through their lives at Homeric pitch. These, at an age when a man's nature receives its last impressions, were Drake's constant comrades. With these men he now for months shared danger and privation. What wonder if the strong fellowship that such an atmosphere alone engenders left its mark forever on the adventurous sailor? Nor was this the sum of his changed surroundings. If the age still bred its hotspurs, it was begetting Iago's too and such a one was Mr. Thomas Doughty. Of all Drake's comrades, this accomplished gentleman won the largest share of his affection. He was a man whose nature, once perhaps admirable, had been poisoned by the atmosphere of intrigue in which he had lived. It was a type which more justly reflects the age of Elizabeth than any one of those brilliant figures who, by the very fact of rising above the ordinary level, most attract the attention, and it was a type most nicely calculated to win the rougher nature of Drake. He was a scholar of no mean pretensions, and could display both Greek and Hebrew. He had served a campaign or so in the Low Countries, and gracefully supported the reputation of a soldier. He had studied law at the temple, and could discourse in honeyed phrases the fashionable philosophizing of the hour. Drake always loved a scholar, as he loved a soldier, especially if he were a Cambridge man, as Doughty seems to have been. Even Essex had been won by his parts. He had been in a confidential capacity in the Earl's household, and when Essex found his work was being thwarted, Doughty had been sent over to try and remove the obstruction at court. But he was now in disgrace, for he had brought back a lying report that the difficulties were all due to Lester's slanders. Essex had written a furious letter of complaint. Lester had explained, and Essex, in a dignified apology, declared that he should withdraw his confidence from Doughty. The discredited servant continued, however, to serve as a soldier. Drake and he became inseparable, and so brotherly in their affection, that the seaman even imparted to his friend the secret on which his whole heart was bent, 
and they vowed to unite their efforts in bringing the great adventure into being it is easy to understand the delight which drake's humanity found in the polished society of such a man for the warfare in which he was engaged was of a fierce brutality beyond anything he had seen the irish seas were swarming with pirates and in burning their galleys and supporting essex in his wretched man-hunts the frigates were chiefly engaged all was murder rapine and fire and the piteous spectacle culminated in the last act of essex proconsulship to the island of rockland the chiefs of the rebels and the invading scots had sent their women and children for refuge and so heartless was war in those days that even this pattern of elizabethan chivalry conceived the idea of destroying them all as the earl retreated to the pale john norris with his company was left behind at carrickfergus under orders to concert with the sea captains the surprise of the sanctuary one day in july a flotilla escorted by the three frigates suddenly left the harbour two days later in spite of every difficulty a landing was effected the first assault on bruce's castle was repulsed but on drake and his fellow-captains getting two heavy guns ashore the scots leader speedily capitulated the garrison was given over by norris to the vengeance of the soldiers two hundred souls were massacred as they left the castle and then day after day a cruel hunt went on till every cave and hollow of those storm-beaten cliffs had echoed with the victims shrieks and not a soul man woman or child could be found alive in st columba's isle so miserably did those two famous captains first join their hands in war we can but turn from the spectacle in disgust and try to think of it as the parent of that most chivalrous venture when drake and norris went out alone to fight the nation's battle and set an exiled monarch on his throne drake himself while the massacre went on was busy with the frigates burning eleven scottish galleys and had it not been so still we could hardly blame him for sharing an exploit which the fairy queen's own knight could describe to her in an exultant dispatch End of section seven